there are times whenever you have a real sense that the Lord has something He wants you to hear. And it's interesting to me that in the songs that we sang, and even in the, the, the time of reflection that uh, Brian led us in, he was pointing us to that picture of the prodigal son. And guess what I had planned this morning to begin our time with? So I think it's something that apparently we all need to hear. And so, as Brian did, I want you to think about that picture. It's a beautiful story. Whether you've grown up in the church or not, you've probably heard the story of the prodigal son. and You've understood the depth of his depravity and where the deep places that he went and how he was forced to live in the mess of his own mistakes. How he really had no right to return to his father. He didn't expect any forgiveness. He knew he didn't deserve it, but he had no other choice. It was his only hope, so he returns home. And just as we pictured in our minds in that time of reflection, we see those open arms as he went and embraced his son in forgiveness. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of redemption. But here's something that you may not have ever done before. I want you to think about this question. What if it happened again? What if the son repeats the same mistake, hits rock bottom, and then comes home? Does his father kill the fatted calf again? If so, how many calves will he kill for repeated mistakes? Let's make it personal. How many times... Does God forgive us? Does he have a limit? Is there, is there a line that we cross where it's just one too many times? This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 51, which is David's prayer of repentance. And I really believe it's going to help us answer some of these questions. And I want us to really take to heart what this picture looks like, because what we're going to see with David is we're going to see what it looks like to have a true heart of repentance. And then we'll also see the beauty of God's response to that heart. And here's a little bonus that we'll take away here at the end, and it's the reality that once we understand the depth of God's mercy and grace towards us, then we get a picture of what it looks like for us to extend the same towards others. So I hope that... uh, as we walk into God's word together this morning, that we let all that he's done to prepare our hearts to really flourish in the beauty of what he has in store for us this morning. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we hear you. We know that you are speaking into our lives through our songs, through your word, through your spirit, as you are drawing us to a place where we need to understand what it means to be forgiven. Where we need to understand the depths of your mercy and grace. Where we need to understand what it looks like to extend that same mercy and grace towards others. Lord, I am confident that you have something for us this morning. So we want to come to you with open hearts and minds that we are expectant 
of your truth through the power of your spirit to work into our heart for the praise and glory of your name. Lord, we believe that to be true together, corporately, as your family, as those who belong to you. And we would ask that we would hear and see the truth of your word as it is spoken this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, like we did last week, I think it's important to set the context of the psalm that we will look at. Calling a a prayer of repentance because that's really what it is, but we need to understand that repentance was not the first thing that came to mind for David. You know, we're familiar with his compromise. He had an adulterous relationship with another man's wife, and when he learned that that woman had become pregnant, her name Bathsheba, then in order to cover his sin, he sent that woman's husband to the front line of the battle so that she would be killed in order to cover his mistake. And it seemed as if it would work. Because for an entire year, an entire year, David lived with this secret. But then the day came when that secret was exposed. We know the story. God sent a man, a prophet by the name of Nathan, who came to David and he tells him a parable. It's a parable about two men who grew up together, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had all kinds of possessions, including whole flocks of sheep and many other animals. The poor man, on the other hand, only had one young lamb that he raised with great care. It was the only thing he had, so he took care of it like it was a member of his own family. The day came when there was a traveler who came to the rich man's house and asked for lodging. It was appropriate in that culture to provide that and to give hospitality to the stranger, including preparing a meal for his guest. But instead of going into the abundance of his own flock, he went and stole and killed the poor man's one and only lamb. After hearing this story, David was enraged. It says in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5, Then David's anger burned greatly against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. Nathan famously responds to David, You are that man. Now turn to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. And when you get there, many of your Bibles will have a little introduction before it gets to verse 1. The NIV says this, A psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So, with that context in mind, now let's read beginning in verse 1. David says, Be gracious to me, O God. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. 
Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. So the first nine verses is really a contrast between David's guilt God's grace. Or really, more specifically, it's a contrast between two natures, isn't it? It's the, the righteousness of God and the sinful depravity of David. But I want you to notice that it's very clear, it's very evident in this prayer of repentance that David is not trying to build a case to prove his innocence, is he? He's not trying to show that somehow he deserves God's forgiveness because he knows, in fact, that he does not. Verse 4, he says, Against you and you alone have I sinned, done what is evil in your sight. You are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. In other words, I'm guilty, undeniably guilty, and I deserve your righteous judgment. But then he goes on in, in verse 5 and he says, and I've been guilty from the beginning. Is essentially what he's saying. He says, I was brought forth in iniquity. In other words, I was born with a sinful nature. So, so David understands that the default direction of his heart is bent towards sin. It's kind of like a car, if you've ever driven a car that's out of alignment. Okay, if you're driving down the road, in a straight path, and you let go of the wheel of a car that's out of alignment, it's going to pull hard to one side, isn't it? And if you let it go, you're going to end up crashing somewhere because you have got to work against what the car naturally wants to do. And David is saying, that's what's true about my heart. Apart from the Spirit, my heart is naturally inclined. It is bent towards sin. His only hope was believing that God's heart is naturally bent towards grace. Because God's nature is altogether different than our own. In verse 1, David says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. It's the word chesed. It means loyal love. It's my favorite Hebrew word in the Bible. God's loyal love. Goes on and says, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my sin. So again, David clearly is not building a case for his innocence. He's relying on God's character for his forgiveness. He understands that he deserves God's judgment, but he is trusting and turning to God's mercy. David is relying on grace to cover his guilt. Look at how he continues in verse 10. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. 
You're not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What I want you to notice here is there's really a shift from David's confession in the first nine verses to what he now communicates beginning in verse 10. Because he doesn't stop with the request for God to remove his sins. What does he do? He goes on and he asks God to change his heart. To me, this is a sign of true repentance. David is not just wanting fire insurance. He's not looking for that get out of hell free card. He wants God to change his heart. And he understands that the the same grace that forgives him is also necessary to change him. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God. David is really looking back to the Genesis account and God's creation of the world. And he's saying, look, I need you to do the very same thing in my own life. I need you to create. I need you to do something new in me, to speak something into existence that I cannot accomplish on my own. He needs a new heart because from that new heart then flow new desires. But along with that, he says he needs a steadfast spirit. It's this idea of of a willingness to walk in obedience. It's what's necessary for those new desires to ultimately be fulfilled by resisting sinful temptation. See, apart from the work of the Spirit, that's simply not possible. David knows that. So he says in verse 1, do not take your, or excuse me, not in verse 1, he says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. You see, what David's thinking about here is King Saul, isn't he? Because King Saul was the first king anointed by God to serve over the, the, the Israelite nation, right? But there was a point in time where Saul, in consistent disobedience, had been removed from that role and responsibility as the Spirit of God anointing him was removed from him. Now, we need to understand that in the Old Testament, the the, the Spirit was given for a specific task, a specific anointing, in this case, to rule God's people as king. It's altogether different than what we see in the New Testament with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. But in Saul's case, he kept taking things into his own hands and ignoring the gift of God's Spirit. And so basically, God's saying, look, if you're not going to use what I've given you, then I'll just take it from you. That's why David says, I don't want to do what my heart desires. I want you to change the desires of my heart. He understands that true transformation is a work of God. And faithful obedience only happens when we walk by the Spirit. But I want you to notice, David isn't saying, Lord, just just help me do better. Just just help me improve and, and make some progress here. What he's saying is, apart from you, I can do nothing. He is totally and completely surrendered before the Lord as a man dependent on his grace and mercy and and the ability to continue to walk in faithfulness even after having been forgiven. 
I believe we see another sign of true repentance in verse 13 when it says that David wants to tell others about what God has done in him. He wants to teach sinners the gift of God's grace by sharing his story of redemption. What made me think, what reminded me of this when I read this in our passage was this past Tuesday, we had commencement for Regen, for all those who've been involved over the past year. And they gave a testimony. It's called a before and after testimony. And it was a beautiful picture of God's transforming work in people's lives. And we kind of commissioned them as they moved on from Regen. And we said, you need to continue to show your wounds in order to share your Savior. In other words, tell your story. That's essentially what's happening every Thursday during the summer at Brown Bag Lunch, is it not? Women from within our church are telling their story. And here's the reality. When there is true repentance and forgiveness in a person's life, they are compelled to tell their story. They want others to know and give praise to the redemptive work that God has done in their life. And when we tell our story, it's important to understand that that it didn't just benefit others. It actually benefits us as well because it reminds us. It it helps us to recall the goodness of God. It it helps us remember his, his grace and mercy that's undeserved but freely given to us. David understands that his forgiveness was not because of anything that he did for God. There was no sacrifice that he could have offered, nothing that he could have done in order to earn God's favor. In fact, he says that, right? If there was a a sacrifice to be offered that would have been sufficient to forgive my sins, I would have done it. But that doesn't exist because I'm wholly and completely dependent upon your mercy and grace. All he could do is bring a broken and contract heart acknowledging his sin and proclaiming, relying on God's goodness and grace. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You'll notice David isn't cowering in fear of God's punishment. He's not bargaining with God or making promises about what he'll do to try, to try to live better. He clearly understands what he deserves, does he not? I know my sin. It is ever before me. Your judgments are true, and you are right in all those judgments. Instead, David is appealing to what he doesn't deserve, God's mercy and God's grace. In the end, it's God's kindness that leads David to repentance. So as we put this piece, the pieces of the, the picture together, I want you to kind of picture what's being portrayed here because David has helped us understand what it looks like to have a heart of repentance. Because a heart of repentance takes responsibility for sin. It doesn't excuse it. It doesn't blame others. It says, I am guilty and I deserve God's judgment. But, but it doesn't end there. It goes on and, and says that not only do I need you for your forgiveness, I need you to transform my heart. I need you to create something new within me. And along with that, give me a, a steadfast spirit, this, this willingness to walk in obedience. 
that means that this is a heart that relies on the Holy Spirit to, to do things within us that we cannot do on our own. A heart that is truly repentant wants to tell the story of redemption, to give praise and glory to God for his grace and mercy. It's a heart that is filled with praise. When you put all those pieces together, that's what a heart of true repentance looks like. But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 18. It says, By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. He's, he's speaking here about what's going to happen within the community of God's people. But it's a little confusing because earlier we just said he didn't care about sacrifices. But here in the final verse, verse 19, it says that he does. So which one is it? Does he care or does he not? Well, here's what David is getting at. God does not delight in any religious ritual that is intended to earn his favor. That has nothing to do with what the sacrifices were given to the Israelites for in the first place. God gave the sacrifices to remind the Israelites of their sin. So that their sin being ever before them would recognize their daily need for God's mercy and God's grace. And, and that's really the picture of what we see in David's prayer. Which is why I believe it's inspired by, by the Spirit to be in Scripture as a model for you and I. This should be a reflection of our heart before the Lord as well. It's a model for us. And, and the us is important because that's essentially the reason for the last two verses. What began is David's prayer of repentance now becomes a corporate praise. Why? Because we all have a story. We've all received God's mercy and grace. Our goal is to cultivate an ongoing heart of repentance. People, Christians, you've heard me say this before. Christians are people of confession, okay? Christians are not people who've got it all figured out and who, who don't struggle anymore. Christians are people who recognize they struggle and they daily depend on God's mercy and grace. Christians are people of confession. We need to cultivate an ongoing heart of repentance. We don't need the gospel just once. We need the gospel every single day. A daily dependence on God's mercy and grace. Because look again at what it says back in verse 7. It says, purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, again, cultural differences, we, we miss some of the significance of this. So hyssop was, a, was an herb, it was a plant, and they would actually kind of form the branches together and turn it into a brush. So in the Old Testament, when the blood of the lamb was put over the door of the Israelite homes, it was put there with hyssop. So that when the angel of death came through, it would pass over these homes that have looked to God in faith for his mercy and grace. Well, that was carried over into the sacrificial system that Moses gave to the Israelite people. And now that same thing, hyssop, was used to take the blood of the sacrifice and spread it onto the altar before God. And so when David is talking about this, this is most certainly what he has in mind. 
So in essence, what he's saying is we are washed whiter than snow when the blood of the sacrifice is wiped on us. That's why we see in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And here it is. The blood of his son Jesus cleanses us from all sin. His blood cleanses it. It's why Jesus tells his disciples when they sat down for that last supper before he would be crucified, and he said, this cup is the blood of the covenant which will be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says that in him, talking about Jesus, we, we have redemption through his blood for the, for, for the forgiveness of sins. So that, that has been according to his grace, which has been lavished upon us. It is through the blood of Christ wiped upon the, the, the people of those who have come before him that has cleansed them of their sins. The blood of the sacrifice washes our sins away. That's the gospel. And that's a truth that we need every single day. And so with that in mind, I want us to kind of finish up this morning with that bonus I mentioned in the beginning. Because once we get a picture of what God's forgiveness looks like towards us, now we understand what it looks like for us to extend forgiveness to other people. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So based on this psalm, we know what that looks like, don't we? It's a gift of grace, not something that's earned. It's, it's motivated by mercy and love, giving to others what, what God has freely given to us. This was probably the most helpful step for me personally when I went through Regen myself. Because it reminded me that forgiveness is primarily a horizontal transaction between me and God, not primarily between me and the other person, okay? Forgiveness is primarily a transaction between me and God. Because here's the deal. We've all experienced this. Our natural tendency is to hold someone in our debt, to hold a grudge, isn't it? We might demand justice or expect some, some kind of apology or some evidence that they're really sorry, and then we'll extend forgiveness. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is between me and God. It's where I entrust any debt owed to me to him. Believing the forgiveness that covers my sin also covers sins against me. God doesn't hold my sins against me. He doesn't hold your sins against you. So we have no right to hold other people's sins against them. Forgiveness is between me and God, between you and God. It's not excusing sin. Okay, let's be clear. It's not, it's not denying the hurt caused by sin. Forgiveness is not an emotion that we got to somehow bring up to, so that we feel like forgiving someone. It's not an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. A decision not to be held captive by bitterness, 
but being set free through forgiveness. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to spend time in Ephesians 4.32. And, and if you are courageous, I would encourage you to memorize it, right? Just take some time this week. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven me, forgiven you. And what you might do is then go into Psalm 51 and work through what we walked through this morning and remind yourself what that looks like. Learn through David's perspective the mercy and grace that is extended to us when we fail, none of which we deserve because we are guilty and our sin is ever before us. But he is kind and his love is loyal. And it never ends. And he extends that to us over and over and over again. It may be the reason that in the scripture, the Bible tells us that God has cattle on a thousand hills, which means he'll never run out of calves to celebrate the sinner who has returned home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your forgiveness, and that's what it is. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet when we turned and put our trust in you, you freely give it. Over and abundantly more than we could ask or imagine. We see from the example of the criminal on the cross that it's never too late. Even moments before our death, you gave him the opportunity to be with you in paradise. We learn from David's example that there's no sin too great that you that, that is outside the boundaries of your forgiveness and that you forgive us over and over again. But Lord, may we cultivate within us a heart of repentance. May we be a people of confession. May we take responsibility for our sin and recognize that it is against you and you alone that we have sinned. May we not just seek forgiveness, but may we seek a heart that has been transformed so that out of that heart flows new desires and being led by the Spirit, may we walk in faithful obedience, may we be compelled to tell our story, may we sing corporately with God's people, giving praise and glory to the grace and mercy that every single one of us daily, moment by moment, have received from you. Lord, may we be a people who gives praise and glory and honor to you for all that you have done. We pray this in your name. Amen. That's good news, right? And that's good news we need every single day. So I hope that this has been a valuable reminder to all of us, no matter where you are. For some of us, we may have just kind of carried on with life normal and not realized the significance of the price that was paid so that we could be washed clean. Praise God for that gift of his mercy and grace. For others, you may be sitting here this morning thinking to yourself as you walk in the doors, but he, he couldn't. He couldn't forgive me knowing what I've done. But the message this morning is he can and he will because his love is loyal and his forgiveness knows no end. Cattle on a thousand hills. But then there's the other piece of this. 
that applies to you extending that same forgiveness towards others. Because sometimes we can be really good at receiving and not so good at giving. But just remember that you cannot hold anything against someone else that God has not held against you. And in the same way that he has forgiven all of the sins that you've committed, he has also forgiven all the sins committed against you. And so go to him in gratitude and see forgiveness between you and him. And let's just see how that changes how you see the other person. Amen? Just as a final reminder, Wills is going to be back in the room. Five, I understand it's Father's Day, but it's come and go. So just come in, introduce yourself if you haven't met him. And uh, take just a brief moment and then uh, go about your day. So let me close this in prayer. Father, we are truly grateful for the gift of your forgiveness, your mercy and grace. Our sins, they are many. Your mercy is more, always has been, always will be. So, Lord, may that stir within us a joy and a praise of gratitude that we just can't get off of our mind. And because of that gratitude and joy within us, may we be so much more free to extend grace towards others. Lord, would you break us free from the bondage of bitterness and let us find freedom in the hope of forgiveness. Lord, we are grateful for the time this morning as your people collectively singing of your grace and mercy extended towards all of us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, and it's in his name we pray.